This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 80. The birth of John the Baptist. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue, tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbours. All these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them upon their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in this house of his servant David. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember the holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of, of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks Ruth. Good morning. Um, Christmas is it's a complicated season, isn't it? Um, I think for a lot of us, um, Christmas can be like Andy Williams says, like the most wonderful time of the year. Um, I'm a Christmas lover. I agree with Andy. I think it is the most wonderful time of the year. Um, I, like many of you as a child, uh, just fell in love with Christmas. Something in me just kind of lights up at Christmas. Um, that never really died for me, though. Um, as a child, I used to actually, like, my family says I slept under the Christmas tree, but I would, I say I slept beside it, but um, I don't know. I really think it's the most wonderful time of the year, but um, Christmas time can also highlight our sorrows, can't it? Um, Christmas time for a lot of us um, just can increase our sadness. Um, maybe it's the hype in those songs. Um, maybe, maybe it's because it's meant to be the happiest season of all. Um, something inside of us can also, at the same time as hearing those, those songs, think, is it? Like, is it really? Um, for me, it seems to highlight my sadness. Um, I think you can feel both at once. I think you can feel the, the loveliness of Christmas and also, at the same time, feel the sadness. Um, but I think the hype of Christmas has almost highlighted our sorrows. Um, everyone in this room has experienced suffering has experienced sorrows. 
um, before. Over the last couple of years, we've been in this kind of communal suffering experience in the form of a global pandemic, haven't we? Um, there's going to be times in each of our lives, though, where things get really hard. Um, I know a lot of you know Jenny and I's family have gone through our fair share of suffering over the last six months. Um, in May, our little girl Ida had to get her appendix out right after that Jenny had a surgery that, um, that she was meant to be in for about 10 days. She ended up being about 25 days. Um, during that time uh, of Jenny's hospital stay, her, her mom got this terrible news that she had bone cancer. There was a time when they were in the hospital together, like a floor apart. Um, eight weeks later, we were at Liz's funeral. Um, not long after that, like many of you, uh, one of our children brought home this novel coronavirus and kind of swept through our, our house uh, very slowly. Um, um, not long after that, Abraham, our son, got really sick, got a bad respiratory virus, um, ended up in the hospital. He was on oxygen for days. His blood oxygen saturation levels just kind of kept going down, so they actually had to end up intubating him, sedating him, putting him on a ventilator for a couple of days. He's up in the room now. He's, he's fine now, but it's been kind of one thing after another for us. Um, I'm not sharing that as a bit of a sob story. I'm sharing that to say that's the human experience for all of us at some point in our lives. Um, I know several of you are going through your own valleys right now. Um, I think of Joy McKnight. She's at home right now in a state of serious heart failure. Um, her heart's working about 30% of its capacity. There's a long road to some recovery for her. Um, we're praying for her. Um, I know a lot of you, this will be the first Christmas without a loved one. Um, I know a lot of, for, for, for a lot of you, every Christmas has this pain around it because you miss a loved one. Um, for some of you, this is actually the loneliest time of the year. Happy Christmas. It's not always the most wonderful time of the year, is it? Um, but that's why we celebrate Advent. I think it's why it's important to, to, to walk through Advent together every year. Um, because Advent, it helps us navigate this one thing that each and every person in this room knows deeply, like down to your bones, we all know that this is not the way it's meant to be, don't we? Um, this, this human experience that we're navigating, um, it's glorious at times, it's ha it has its glorious moments, but it's also incredibly difficult. Um, we all know this is not the way it's meant to be. Um, one of the most common cries of every human on earth from the beginning of human history has been this cry that we've cried ever since the fall in the garden, um, this cry that we've, we've whispered and shouted and sung for generations, and it's this cry for mercy, um, this cry for mercy. Mercy is its kindness or its help that's given to someone in a very bad or desperate situation. Um, I know f over the last six months, our family has cried for, for mercy several times. We've been it's just like you're in this desperate situation and you just have to cry for relief, cry for help, make it stop, mercy. Um, that's the cry of every person on earth at some point in your life. We need help. We need relief. We need mercy. Um, another way of defining mercy, and I think it's even a, a, an even more biblical definition, is it's, it's kind or forgiving treatment of someone who could or, or should deserve to be treated harshly. So mercy is this kind or forgiving treatment of someone who should be treated harshly. Mercy is when we deserve punishment. It's when we actually deserve to be cut off. It's when we deserve to be treated harshly, but instead we're treated with kindness. 
We're given forgiveness when we don't deserve forgiveness. That's a real kind of biblical definition of mercy. Um, so we all know deep down, don't we, that this is not the way it's meant to be. And we've cried out for mercy. And that's what Advent provides answers for, for us. It helps us, Advent helps us navigate our desperate situations as we cry out for mercy. I also want you to know this morning that the Bible agrees with you, God agrees with you that this is not the way it's meant to be. That's, that's the cry in God's heart for you, like this isn't what I've created you for. This experience isn't what you're meant to be experiencing. God would agree you do need help, you do need mercy. Um, and that's what today's story is all about. It's the story of, of a man and his wife who are in a desperate situation, but they're recipients of mercy, and it completely changes their world. Um, let me pray for us one more time. Uh, Father, we just thank you that you are a God who isn't just far off and cares about us in some way. You're a God who actually draws near to us. And Jesus, you become one of us, and you know deep in your bones that this is not the way it's meant to be. You know how desperate our situation is. We thank you that you have provided a way to have hope, a way to receive relief. Um, Lord, may we uh, understand that in a deeper way. Maybe for, for someone, the, the very first time that light goes off and they experience that, maybe it's for the thousandth time for an old follower of Christ. Um, may we see you, Lord, more clearly. We thank you for our kids. Amen. Um, we've actually covered part one of this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth at the start of Luke 1, but we kind of pick it up here again in verse 57. Um, just as a reminder, Zechariah is this Jewish priest. He's married to this woman called Elizabeth. Uh, Luke tells us that they're both righteous before the Lord. It just means they, they follow God's ways. They, they're part of His people. Um, they're, they're counted as, as, as kind of blameless before the Lord. Uh, we're also told Zechariah and Elizabeth, they don't have any children because Elizabeth is barren, um, but we're also told that, that they were both advanced in years. That's a, they're, they're old. They're, they're, they're the age of a granny and a granda, but without any children to call them that. Um, one day, Zechariah is performing his priestly duties in the temple. An angel called Gabriel appears before him and tells him, hey, you, you and your wife, your prayers have been heard, and now Elizabeth is going to have a son. Uh, and then Gabriel says, you're to name that boy John. Um, he's going to be a special man. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to be this powerful preacher. Uh, he's going to prepare God's people for the coming Savior. Um, incredible news, isn't it? But Zechariah, even though he's this priest, this righteous man, uh, he doesn't fully believe. And he responds with, how can I know for sure? He's, he's, he's saying that, Gabriel, don't you realize that me and Elizabeth are, are old? We're past the age where you can have children. But Abriel responds, don't you know who I am? I'm Gabriel. I, I stand in the presence of God. God has actually sent me here to you to deliver his message, you idiot. <laughs> so what I'm going to do, he says, is I'm going to make you dumb for nine months. You're not going to be able to uh, speak. You're going to be silent. You're not going to be able to hear until this boy comes. And here in verse 57, we pick up where we left off. Verse 57 says, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. So there you go. And it turns out when God speaks, we should listen. When God says he's going to do something, he in fact is going to do it, and we should trust him. And, but the scene we're presented here uh, is a celebration. 
old barren Elizabeth has had a son. Um, and in verse 58, we see her community is just, uh, they're just delighted for her. her. Her neighbors and her family are rejoicing with her. Um, but look at what the reason Luke gives for their rejoicing. He says, their neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Um, I know some of you have, have struggled to conceive. Um, I know some of you know that pain. Um, maybe, maybe not being able to conceive. Maybe it's been a, a miscarriage or, or several miscarriages. Um, if you've experienced that, or maybe even if you, you know someone closely who's gone through that, you know that deep sadness, that feeling that this is not the way it's meant to be. Um, and that's what Elizabeth and Zechariah had felt for decades but when this mercy comes with the, the birth of their son, everyone just rejoices. They, they have this, this, this celebration. The Lord has, has intervened. He's shown great mercy, which results not in just Elizabeth and Zechariah rejoicing, but in their whole community rejoicing. And on the eighth day, uh, remember they're faithful in their obedience to God. They came to circumcise this child. So God commanded that all the male uh, children of Israel be circumcised on the eighth day. It's just circumcision is the sign of God's covenant relationship with his people at the time. Um, and apparently Jewish families held that circumcision ceremony in their homes with their families and their neighbors and their community. And apparently this is where they, they named their children as well. And, and tradition dictated that the child be named after a relative, a family member. So name them to honor one of their parents or maybe a grandparent or a uh, uh, another relative. And it seems that the surrounding family thought it was obvious what this boy's name should be. He obviously should be Zachariah Jr. It's, it's obvious that we should name this child after his father because of their circumstances. This is a, 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 a miraculous gift of God. These, these people are old. They're well past the age of childbearing. This child is a miracle, a medical marvel. Also think of Zechariah's nine months of suffering. He's, 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 for the last, last nine months, he hasn't been able to hear anything or speak a word. Um, everyone has been wondering what's happened to him ever since that, that time in the temple. Imagine, imagine that. Imagine suddenly can't hear a thing, can't speak for nine months. Like what, what suffering, what incredible difficulty that must, that must have been. Surely it, it made sense to honor Zachariah by naming the child after him. Zachariah Jr., that's his name. Um, love that the, the extended family just assumed they had a say in what we're going to name this child as if it's theirs. Um, I think they had really good intentions. Um, it just made sense to honor Zachariah to keep his name alive. Um, but but what it, it seems that they were unaware of what Gabriel had said to Zachariah in that temple. Or maybe Zachariah told them, but they had forgotten. But in this moment, they, they they'd forgotten that God had already named this child. N naming something or naming someone is often associated with having dominion or rule over that person or thing. And we see that, that John, he's not going to be, uh, have no, no human is going to have dominion over him. God is going to be his ruler. Um, the crowd just expects this child to be named Zachariah, but Elizabeth says, no, his name will be John, which kind of sends shockwaves through the, the crowd, you see. It didn't, this doesn't make any sense at all. There's no one called John in their family. Where, where is this coming from? So they turn to Zechariah do some kind of sign language, and they ask him what he wanted him to be called. And Zechariah, who can neither hear or speak, he asked for a tablet, and he writes what the name of the angel said, and he wrote down, his name is John. Do you see the transformation that's happened in Zechariah's heart here? It looks like he's, he's learned his lesson, this, this lesson that when God acts, we should listen, we should believe. 
We can see that Zechariah learned from his mistake in the first part of the chapter. You can see that God actually used this time of suffering to sanctify Zechariah. Do you see the contrast between his disbelief in verse 18 and his rock-solid confidence here in verse 63? I think it's almost comforting that even, even he is a priest. This is someone who had taught countless times of the ways that God has intervened in his people's lives to save them, to rescue him. He knew that Exodus story. He, he had it memorized. He had, he had uh, taught it several, several times. He knew all the ways that God had intervened in his people's lives. And even, even he, a priest who knew those things, when that angel comes to him and says, God's going to do this in your life, he reacts in disbelief. And the Lord brings him through some trials to teach him some valuable lessons. But look at the contrast here in verse 63. He doesn't just say, yeah, let's go with John. I, or I agree with Elizabeth. John sounds like a good name. No, he says, his name is John. Zachariah has moved from how will I know this to be sure to his name is John. This child has been named already by God. And he just follows the instructions of God. He knows he must follow the instructions, and he announces his name is John. And at that moment where this, his faith and his obedience come together in mercy, God lifted his punishment and freed Zachariah's tongue. And what you see is praise comes flying out. That, that's his response to, to God's mercy in that moment is praise. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, this shows that, that his nine months of dumbness had not been inflicted on him in vain. He is no longer faithless, but believing. He now believes every word that Gabriel had spoken to him, and every word of his message shall be obeyed. He says, let us take heed that affliction does us good, as it did to Zechariah. He says, sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. The sorrow that humbles us and drives us nearer to God is a blessing and a downright gain. No case is more hopeless than that of a man who in a time of affliction turns his back on God. So you see, Zechariah has, he has changed through his nine months of suffering. God, God actually has sanctified him. He has gone from disbelief to faith and believing. The time of suffering, it wasn't pointless affliction for Zechariah. It was actually improving him. And you see that Zechariah's praise is, is contagious. In verse 65, uh, all the neighbors are just in awe of God. In verse 66, those who were there uh, talked about it everywhere. They stored it up in their hearts. Everyone who had heard what had happened here knew that something miraculous and supernatural was happening. What a, what a spectacular moment of praise because of Zechariah's belief and his obedient response to God's word. I want you to pick up on that, on that wee point of suffering. Um, one commentator wrote, our suffering will either make us bitter or better. It made Zechariah better. Zechariah had, had learned probably more about his own heart and about God in that nine months than he ever had before. And the proof of that is in the praise that leaped out of his mouth that day. And we'd find it probably reasonable, <laughs> it'd, it'd probably be understandable if his first words were, finally I can speak. Oh, at last I can hear again. This has been awful. I, that probably would be my, my uh, response, but not for him. The first thing out of his mouth is praise. 
Church, how are we handling our suffering? Is, is it working in us deeper thoughts about God's goodness or harder thoughts about our circumstances? Are we growing warmer or colder towards God? Friends, lean into Him. In your suffering, know that your, your trials are not pointless. God is working in you. He is, he is sanctifying you even in those trials. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. That happened for Zechariah. That was Zechariah's response and his result of his trials. May it be so for us as well. May, may our, the result of our journeying through darkness, through trials, be praise and glory and honor towards God. That's exactly what happened in Zechariah's story. And again, it wasn't just Zechariah and Elizabeth that praised. It was there that it, it actually spread through the country of Judea. It says, all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So everyone there at that circumcision naming ceremony knew that this was no ordinary situation. God, God was at work here. God was doing something here. I love that last, part, that last part of the sentence of verse 66. For indeed the Lord's hand was with him. What a beautiful sentence. God's hand was with John. And you see the result of that all the way at the end in verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that what we should want for our community? Isn't that what we should want for our children? That the, Lord, that the hand of the Lord be with them. That, that, they grow, that they grow and become not just physically strong, but spiritually strong. Don't we want love, God's loving, powerful hand upon our people? Here's the main point of that first section is God's mercy means joy and praise for Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it means the same for us too if we receive it. Mercy was shown, praise springs forth. And then verse 67, uh, Zechariah was, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So the, the mercy was shown, and this song of praise burst forth out of Zechariah's spirit-filled belief and obedience. And from verse 68, we get this, this Holy Spirit-filled song of praise from Zechariah. So another song, another hymn. Last week, we look at Mary's song of praise. This week, we have Zechariah's song, which he really gives us this overview of the careers of these two boys who are going to be born, Jesus and John. But notice, um, notice though it's John's circumcision, they're, they're at this celebration of this Child, his child, this long-awaited child, John, was born. Although it's his circumcision, Zachariah's song completely focuses on the other child, Jesus. He mentions John briefly in the middle, but the focus of the song is on the one to whom John will point. This is a song about the promised one who will be sent to rescue and to bless those who would turn to him. The song's main theme is found in verses 68 to 70. And really, the rest of the song is just an elaboration of that theme. And this is what we learn from Zechariah's prophecy. The main theme is God in His mercy has sent salvation to His people. 
God in his mercy has sent salvation to his people. That's, that's the song summed up. Um, praise God because in his mercy he has sent salvation to his people. Um, quickly, we'll just go through the song. We'll kind of break it up into four sections. The first part, uh, in verses 68 to 70, we'll call this the plan of salvation. Zechariah begins his song by blessing and praising God because he has visited them and redeemed them with a strong salvation. Um, so, this, again, the Lord God of Israel has, has once again acted on behalf of his people by visiting them and redeeming them. Uh, this must have filled Zechariah's heart so much um, as, because he, he preached this for decades. Again, what's the Exodus story? God's people in a desperate situation, crying out for mercy for literally hundreds of years, and then God visiting them, enacting salvation and showing them mercy. God breaks into their situation, saves them, and redeems them. And again, in this song, Zechariah is essentially saying, God's doing it again. He's, he's acting on behalf of his people by visiting them and redeeming them. Luke chapter 2 makes it clear that, that the visitation that, that Zechariah is talking about is the Messiah's visitation. And in verse 69, Zechariah says, he says, a horn has been raised up. So a horn in the Bible is used to symbolize power and strength. God has raised up this horn in the house of David through which he is coming to visit his people. It's this, this, this image of the strength of the one who is to come. It's this image of war being waged. Uh, waged. It's this image of, of a battle being invoked. This, this, this son of David who is coming is going to be this powerful one in the midst of our conflict. And this is the, the powerful salvation that was promised long ago. It's going to come through David's family line. It's been waiting for this moment for, for a long time. Verses 70 to 73 says this goes all the way back to the forefathers, back to Abraham. But again, in, in verse 72, it says this salvation, it's an act of mercy. There's this mercy being shown again. God, God he, he, he saves to prove his mercy to his people. And so all of us who are longing for things to be made right again, all of us who are longing for, for mercy to be shown, Zechariah is saying, here it comes. This is it, finally. God has come and he is enacting his mercy. I want you to see that the entire Bible, like the, the whole book, it's about one story. It's about one thing. It's about salvation. The, the, the entire Bible is this story of God coming to visit and get his people and redeem them and save them. That was and is his plan. Has many parts to it, and one part that we'll see in verse 30, 73 was, was to save Israel from their haters and from their enemies, but this, this was God's plan, to visit his people and to redeem them, to show them mercy. That's the plan of salvation. And what you see in verses 72 to 75 is the purpose of salvation. I want you to see here in Zechariah's song, what you see in verses 72 to 75 is really what Zechariah desires most. What his, what his heart longs for. And what we see Zechariah desires most is to be delivered from his enemies. That, that's been the, the cry of, of the prophets and, and through the Psalms, the whole Bible, isn't it? Deliver us from our, from your, from our enemies, Lord. And that's Zechariah's desire here. But notice why he wants to be delivered from his enemies. He says, so he can serve God with his whole life without fear 
and in righteousness and holiness. So he, he, he talks about this mercy that's come, that's going to be shown, this strong horn of salvation, this coming one is going to save them from their enemies, from all who hate them, to show us mercy that was promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. He's been waiting on this for years. This is what he desires most in verse 74, that, that we being delivered from our enemies might serve him without fear in righteousness and holiness before him all of our days. That's what Zechariah desires most. And that's the purpose of this salvation. Note that Zechariah is longing for his nation's vindication. He's talking about the nation of Israel being vindicated from their enemies. He's probably thinking of Rome here. But what we see, what we will see as we make our way through the rest of Luke's gospel, which, by the way, we're going to do that come January. We're just going to keep going in Luke. What we'll see is the scope of Zechariah's hymn of hope is far broader. Luke will show us how this, this promised one from David's house comes in power, and his, his power extends far beyond the political forces that sit over Israel. This significant figure that God has raised up, this, this son of David, which Zechariah says, David, God's servant, he himself will become a servant, won't he? Philippians 2, 7, he's, he's powerful, but he comes and he empties himself and he takes on the form of a servant. But this servant will actually come and take on the cosmic forces that oppress all of humanity and bring pain and suffering into the world. Jesus is the Savior who will come and take on those forces. And what we'll see later is when, when liberation finally comes through Jesus' ministry, it's not Rome that leads the enemy lines, it's Satan and sin itself. That's why Zechariah turns and he, he compares the, the careers of, these, of his son John and this, this other child who would bring salvation. What does he focus on? He focuses on spiritual issues of their ministry. I want you to see, though, that the, the purpose of this salvation or the goal of their physical deliverance was not simply physical deliverance. The goal was worship. That's what you see in verse 74 that we being delivered from our enemies might serve him without fear. That word serve is to minister. It's this devotion to God, to serve God through prayers and, and, and sacrifices. It's, it's worship. He's talking about worship. Deliverance so they can worship. The goal was to worship. That's the purpose of salvation, to deliver them so that they can worship him. Do you see that Zechariah, he's basically quoting Exodus seven sixteen, where where where. God tells Moses, here's what I want you to tell Pharaoh. And he says, go and tell him, let my people go. Why? So that they may serve me in the wilderness. He says, let my people go so that they may worship me freely. That was God's goal way back then for setting his people free, was to set them free to worship. And that is the same goal here. That's what the preacher Zechariah is saying. Lord, set us free from our enemies so that we might worship you. Give us another exodus. God saves us so that we might worship him. He shows us mercy so that we might worship him without fear. You see what happened to Zechariah when his mouth was freed and praise came pouring out? That should be what happens to us as well. All of God's people are to praise and glorify God when mercy is shown, when salvation is brought. That's the purpose of salvation. Not simply to set you free, 
to be you, but to set you free for a purpose so that you might worship God without fear. You might worship him in holiness and in righteousness all of your days. So that's the plan of salvation, the purpose of salvation. And next in verses 76 and 77, Zechariah briefly talks about the prophet of salvation. And here he finally mentions his son. (laughs) He finally mentions John. Up until now, the song has all been about the coming Savior. And here, just for a moment, he mentions John. And you see, John will be great. He'll be called the prophet of the Most High. The Most High is the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. John's going to be unique among all the prophets because he's this forerunner. John's purpose is to soften the ground. His purpose is to to till the soil of Israel's heart. John's not going to be the Savior, but he'll make people ready for the Savior by teaching them how they are to be saved. He says he's going to give them knowledge, which means he's going to teach them about salvation through the forgiveness of sins. John's a signpost. John's, John's just going to point people to the coming Savior. He's going to prepare the way for him. Do you see how in this song, Zechariah, he defines John's life wholly in relationship, in relation to Jesus' life. He defines John's life and his mission wholly in relation to Jesus' life and mission. He said John's life is going to be all about Jesus. John, John's sole purpose in this world will be to lift up Jesus, will be to, to point people to Jesus, will be to prepare people for Jesus. That's John's purpose, is to glorify Jesus, to make Jesus famous. And you see that John grew up to fully believe that as well. In John's gospel, the disciple, John 3.30, John the Baptist here is, is talking about his, the purpose of his life, and he sums his whole life up with these words that he must increase and I must decrease. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He says, John's like, I'm like a best man in a wedding. The, the wedding day, it's not about me, it's about the groom. The groom is there to serve the groom, to see if everything's ready, to make sure everything's all right, preparing the way. I must decrease, Jesus must increase. John fully believed that, that was his life mission, was not to make himself famous, but to make Jesus famous. He must increase, I must decrease. It's a bit of a tangent, but this week I was talking, I, I, I was just thinking about the realness of these stories. You can just kind of skip through the Gospels and we kind of miss out on the time scale and the realness of these families working together. Like Zachariah was mute and deaf for nine months. You can read that and be like, oh, that sucks. That was awful. Like, imagine that. What's suffering? You can easily read John's story, Zachariah's song, John growing up, becoming spiritually song, eventually summing his life up with, I must decrease, Jesus must increase. But there's something important in thinking about how John got there. How did he get to the point of believing with his whole being that his purpose was to lift up Jesus? He believed that so much that he he died for it. His head was chopped off, put on a platter, like awful. That doesn't happen to you unless you fully believe that. How did he get there? Sometimes we can just think, well, God snapped his fingers and it, it happened. God's hand was on him, so it just, you know, it just happened. But that's not how God works. That's not how God works through anybody in the Bible. God is working with and through real people. John was a real man just like you and me. He learned things just like you and me, slowly, 
over time and from someone. That's how Zechariah learned to trust God, isn't it? Slowly, through suffering, nine months of, of affliction. But he got there, didn't he? You see, in his song of praise, that Zechariah fully believed that it was all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Even his son John's life will be about Jesus, not himself. It'll be about lifting up Jesus. And later when we see that John fully believed that too, when he said, I must decrease, he must increase. I don't think that, John, that God just kind of clicked his fingers and, and John got that. John learned that over a long period of time. John was taught that. You see, in, 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 in this section, that John was raised by two parents who were blown away by God's mercy in their life. Zechariah and Elizabeth were blown away by God's mercy, and it resulted in obedience in their life and praise, and that's the way they raised their son John. And they taught their son John that his life was not about himself. It will be about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Zechariah and Elizabeth certainly taught that John, his, his life would have a purpose, but that life, his, the purpose of his life would not be to lift up himself, but to lift up Jesus. When he said those words, I must decrease, he must increase, someone taught him that. I fully believe it was his dad. It was his parents. His mom and dad got it. They believed it to their core. The proof is here in Zechariah's song. It's all about the coming Messiah. Zechariah raised his son to know that and to believe that. May we do that as well. May we be a community that are so blown away by God's mercy that we teach that to our little ones. May they one day believe, my life is not my own. It's all about Jesus. May they fully believe that and live these God-given identities out in their lives. It's a bit of a tangent, but I want you to see that Zechariah's prophecy, it defines John's life in, relationship, in relation to Jesus' life and mission. I want us to see that all lasting meaning is found when we define ourselves in that way as well. Greatness comes not from serving ourselves, but from serving God. And greatness comes when we, like John, say, we must decrease, Jesus must increase. The prophet of salvation points to the bringer of salvation. Lastly, as we draw to a close in verses 77 and 79, we see the peace of salvation. In these last verses, Zechariah, he begins to describe the effect that this salvation will have on the people. So the, 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 the plan of salvation, God's going to visit his people and redeem them with this strong promised one. The purpose of salvation, he's come to redeem them so that they can worship him freely. The prophet of salvation points to um, the, 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 the Savior. And in these last verses, he says, this is the effect that that salvation will have on the people. And you, real quick, we see three effects that that salvation that Jesus brings. Firstly, we see the salvation is ultimately spiritually, spiritual and personal. In verse 77, it, 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 he says it involves the forgiveness of sins. This is the point where people are like, I don't want to hear this bit. Are you able to say this anymore? But that feeling that I mentioned at the start, this is not the way it's meant to be. That feeling that, that this world seems to be broken. You're right, it is. But the problem, that it's important to understand that the problem, the reason this world is so broken is because of sin. 
And if you go all the way back to the, and read the Genesis story, God created this world to be this perfect dwelling place for him and for you to live together in perfect union. But that ideal was shattered when our first grandparents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God. And sin entered into our hearts. And ever since sin has been passed down through generation after generation, it's spread. And sin has broken that, that peace between us and God. And so things are, are, are not the way they're meant to be. But the problem is that, that, that sin exists in our heart and it drives this wedge between us and God. And it drives a wedge between us and each other. It even drives a wedge between you and yourself. So it's important to understand that when we're searching for the problem in this world, the reason it's so broken is we, we look within. The problem exists in each and every one of us. And that's why Zechariah talks about the forgiveness of sins, because sins must be forgiven. Why is sin a problem? Because sin is an offense to God who is holy and righteous and perfect. And God in his holiness and in his perfect justice and in his righteous anger, he will punish the sinner forever unless they are forgiven. But that's the beauty of God being both just and merciful, isn't it? We have a God who, who comes and he provides a way for justice to be carried out, for that sin to be dealt with. But for all, he also provides a way for mercy to be shown. And he does that by sending Jesus on the cross to die and to bear that penalty for our sins. And he pays the penalty himself. And mercy is shown in that moment. You see, we need to be rescued from God's coming judgment against the world. Unless we are rescued, we will suffer punishment in hell forever. Have you escaped that condemnation? Do you know how? Well, secondly, this salvation is by God's mercy. That's verse 78. It says, it's because, I love this line, the tender mercy of God. It's because of our God's merciful compassion. And that's the only reason anyone is ever forgiven of sin, because of God's tender mercy. Friends, you cannot earn forgiveness. You, you cannot uh, purchase your forgiveness. You cannot demand forgiveness. There's only one, uh, there, there, there would be no peace in forgiveness I think if it was down to us to, to earn it, wouldn't there, would there be? There would be no peace in forgiveness if it was down to us to earn our forgiveness. We'd only worry if we'd ever done enough, wouldn't we? We'd, ever, we'd only worry if we were strong enough. Have, have we paid enough? What about when we sin again? Do we have to pay more? No, because forgiveness only comes by God's mercy. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. Which means that forgiveness is free and it's undeserved. The only step we can take to find forgiveness with God is just to simply ask for it. Beg for mercy and God will show it. That's what 1 John 1, 9 says. If you confess your sin, he is faithful to forgive it. That's the best news. That's the beauty of having a God who is both just but also merciful. Jesus comes and he takes care of both of those things for you on the cross. And thirdly, as we close, we see this salvation brings light. For 78 to, 70, uh, 78 to 88, 
78 to 79, sorry, says, the sunrise or the, the dawn shall visit us from on high to, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isn't that amazing? Let me read that again. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Do you feel deeply down that this is not the way it's meant to be? Do you feel as if you're sitting in darkness, like a prisoner in a dungeon underground? Do you feel no matter how many times you try, no matter how hard you try, that you just cannot escape the darkness? Here's the good news, friends, is, is through the mercy of God, we receive light. Through the mercy of God, we receive light. The Apostle Peter, he says, for those who have trusted in Christ, he says, God has brought you out of darkness into the marvelous light. We, we sit in our darkness like prisoners, but when Christ comes in our, in, in our hearts, he brings light. When, when Christ comes, suddenly everything shines. Darkness flees. De death is defeated. If you've never experienced that before, let me just say it, it, it truly is real. It truly is, it truly happens. All you have to do, though, is ask God for mercy. Place your faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. And that movement from darkness to marvelous light is true and it happens. And verse 79 says, Christ... Um, uh, uh, through Christ, he, he lights our feet into the way of peace. That feeling, is, that feeling that it's not the way it's meant to be. In some ways, all of us, Christians, non-Christians alike, will, will feel that feeling until Christ's second advent, which we are waiting for, when he comes and he, he does do away with sin forever. He does make things new once and for all. But for Christians, and, and only for the Christian, there is this experience here and now in the midst of the darkness of the world, an experience of peace, an experience of shalom, of wholeness, of God making things the way they're meant to be. Because salvation brings peace, peace between you and God, peace between you and your brother, your sister, but also peace within yourself. That's this light that this salvation brings. Have you experienced that peace before? Has the sunrise dawned in your soul yet? When's the last time you, you erupted in praise because that has happened to you? You stand with me and we'll pray.